be reading out of Romans chapter 8. You would, uh, well, you're welcome to follow along on the screen. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. We've been looking at a series and its ending this week, which for some of you will be too bad and for others will quite enjoy it from what I can tell, uh, where we're looking at uh, almost truths. It's what I'm calling uh, statements that we come up with. And what we're searching for and wrestling for, which is good, are statements that help us lock on to God's truth. But many of them don't. They don't help us actually be gripped by the truth of his scriptures. I was thinking this week about flowers as I watch uh, trees and flowers and blackberry bush in front of my house grow and I notice it a little better. And um, I think most of us know that April showers bring. And yet there's a time that someone's going to tell us that they have seasonal affective disorder. And hopefully we're not going to say that to them in a cheery voice. And hopefully if they ask us the pain in their eyes about the gray, that has a physical and, and psychosomatic and integrated effect on them, we might say, yeah, but I get that you're sad. There's a time to say it. There's, there's uh, a tone to say it in. And what, what's happening is in our desire to control our life, which isn't a bad desire, though it needs a lot of wisdom and help from Scripture, in our fear, in our nervousness, we often g- grab onto statements that feel like statements that control, and yet oftentimes they fail us. Proverbs 25.20 says, Like vinegar on an open wound is the one who sings songs to the heavy-hearted. I love that proverb. Um, because sometimes that's what we end up doing. And, and perhaps even worse than saying to a neighbor a trite truism or almost truth, which probably has some implied lies in it, is when we say it to our own soul. I shared a couple of weeks ago an article that said that discomfort that you're feeling is grief. It's in the uh, Harvard Business Review, and I then listened to a podcast, now reading a book by the man who wrote the article called The uh, Sixth Stage of Grief. And I, I want to be clear, and this is a biblical thought. This is uh, what I understand from my own study and experience. We are grieving right now. And uh, for many of us, that grief is acute. For those on the front lines, several in our church, and in, uh, that used to go to our church. And then others of us are grieving because life is so very different than we thought it would be. And I'm, this is uh, less egregious than a, than a civic battle with guns and bombs, 
And yet we are grieving. And our culture doesn't like grief. And yet Christians are called to grieve with hope. Is what Paul says in the book of Thessalonians. And I know that for some of you, periodically throughout the day, your heart starts racing. For some of you, you're sleeping more. For some of you, you have trouble sleeping. Some of you are exercising more. Some of you have dropped it. Some of you are going for that next drink pretty quickly. This is, these are parts of how we do human life, and I want to label them. The reason we're tempted to those things, maybe one or two of them, is because of the grief that we're experiencing. And we feel it differently in our bodies and minds and guts, but the collective thing that we're going through is grief. And to be human, to be made in the image of God, means to learn to grieve. And I, and I want to be super clear about this because some of you are practical grievers and some of you are enthusiastic humans and that's actually part of the way that you grieve. This is not about wallowing. This is about naming so that we don't wallow. And this might not sound anywhere near an almost truth and yet there is one and it is my favorite uh, of the series. That's why we're going to conclude it. And it's important that we grapple with it. When I wrote the series, we were not in pandemic time and it would, I, so I have to tweak this sermon a little bit because I don't think this is a truism that we're going to apply to the pandemic, but it is one that we need to eliminate and to think about. Heard somebody say that one? I think we, I think we want to understand, and that's a good, that's a good desire. I think we want to control, and aspects of that are good. And I think we forget our limits, and I think we forget the complexity of human life, and I think we forget the length of time that will be required for us to find purpose and meaning. It doesn't mean there isn't reason. It doesn't mean there isn't purpose and there isn't meaning. But sometimes when we say that, I, I, I almost have a physical reaction to it at this point because what I hear people saying is, I need to know the reason that this happened. And in our haste to find that, we avoid the more human, integrative, holistic way of moving into the things uh, that have caused us pain, perhaps self-inflicted, perhaps not. I don't mind this statement. Does everything have reason behind it? Yeah. I mean, my biggest problem with everything happens for a reason is the A. My biggest concern when someone quotes it to me, and I can tell that they're searching for the meaning in the thing that they suffered, is they assume there's one. They don't mean to. It's not, it's not intentional. Um, but, but the truism has so infected us that we wonder. Maybe just barely, and many of you have never wondered this. Good for you. Sermon series is almost over. I'm so glad you've already wrestled these trite truisms to the ground and eliminated them from your vocabulary. But for many of the rest of us, we have to push these out and then understand them much more holistically and thoroughly through scriptures like Romans 8. Oftentimes, behind the question is a very human question. The psalmists ask this in, in multiple ways. Was God paying attention? Did this surprise him? Did he allow this or make this happen? We're wondering how this could fit into his plan. And does God promise 
that literally everything that has happened to you is part of his cosmic plan, both for you and your life and for the world. Yes. When do we learn about that? We'll talk about that in a minute. And so I'm just going to give you the key to that. If you're already tired of this sermon, you know, you can go to the dining room and I won't know. But here's my encouragement. Purpose is better than reason. And meaning is actually what we're looking for. And meaning is available to us, but we have to wrestle a little bit. And one of the reasons that these almost truths are so challenging for us is because uh, they're hasty. And we kind of like haste. We would kind of like to control our pain and others in our world. And so we look for these quick truths. And yet, they're not going to help us. I think that you've experienced pain in your life. I think pain from the past or perhaps acute pain in the present or even future fear. I think you're aware of it. And and you're aware of it in different ways. Some of you are more aware of it here. Some of you are more aware of it here. Some of you are more aware of it here. And we turn to hasty statements instead of the scripture. And I'm worried that it will harm you to believe everything happens for a reason and by that control the thing that you couldn't control and is now causing you pain that you may or may have not may or may not have spoken to someone about. And I say this because, well, Marilyn Robinson writes it this way in Gilead, her Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, the main character is a pastor named John Ames, and he says, when I'm walking down the street, people will change the subject when they hear me approaching, especially if they're joking. And then they come into my office and they say the most remarkable things. I was ordained in our denomination over a decade ago, and I remember how people began speaking to me differently in both of those ways, both changing the subject when I walked by and then coming into my office and saying incredibly remarkable things. And I keep a lot of different journals, and I have one from that time. And what I remember learning the first year that I was ordained was most people come into my office asking some version of, am I crazy or was that a really big deal? And they expect my knowledge of Scripture and my calling into the ministry to be capable of helping them wrestle with that before God. And rough statistic, four out of five of those people I got to sit with and sigh and groan and pray and say, you're not crazy. I nuance it now a little bit. Like With respect to the issue that we're talking about, you're not, that was a big deal. And integrating that into your being finding the meaning that God has for you. Of course, God is going to grow us through the things that we've suffered from. And yet, if we run to how is he growing me, that's a way of pushing aside our pain and trying to control it. I worry about the haste. What I'm concerned about is when people relativize or compare with the purpose of squashing what's happened to them. What worries me is when people want to minimize. Now, the harder conversation is when someone is making something a really big deal that wasn't. And I don't have any good examples of that, but that's, that's a much more challenging conversation. Well, I'm not sure that should be giving you nightmares or whatever. And as I'm getting at this and getting at the haste, I think you know some of the reason it's important to wrestle these to the ground. What, not only our hearts, but what do our neighbors need from us as their friends? I have a good friend, recent medical diagnosis. He's not able to get all the tests because it'll be elective, but it's very scary stuff. 
and we're talking on the phone and I have this energy and it's an energy to help and to control and to ask really good but actually leading actually really bad questions and I'm coaching myself literally moment by moment while he's talking. If he's talking, then I'm being a good friend in this moment. Our mailman and I are becoming better friends because none of you are around and uh, our mail person knows that he's welcome here and he's concerned for a family member. And in that moment, I want to change the subject because I'm nervous or I want to fix something or say something clever that would be just funny enough and related enough that we might have a laugh, but I know what I'm supposed to do, which is sit with him for a second and say, man, I'm sorry. That's got to be scary. One of the funniest examples I think of the way we do this is Jeremiah 29.11. Can you finish this quote? For I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. A beautiful passage. Yeah, I, I, I googled it this week and uh, found that it is very common in, in like word art. So like putting it up on a wall in your house. I think we're pretty fond of telling graduates uh, this quote. And yet, do you know the context of that quote in the Bible? It's exile. And not exile like a king who wanted to conquer people and had to go live on an island but still had a couple of servants. Exile as in heinous siege and horrific war where children were killed and removal from the land that the Israelites considered part of their heritage and part of their religion that they were supposed to use to bless the nations around them. Removal from all of that into Babylon, hundreds of miles away. We have this beautiful promise, but the context of it is exile. And I think it's worth our time to wrestle these almost truths out and to receive in the actual truths of Scripture that are far more, they're actually nourishing. If life is compared to a sporting event, and especially the Christian life, I think it's a marathon. And I have not run a marathon. I have ridden a long ways on a bicycle. And I remember I would periodically be looking for training tips online and asking a couple of friends when I was training for um, the bike race. And almost every article I read had a sort of sweet note in it. And so did my friends that said, there is no substitute for sitting on the bike and pedaling. And similarly, there isn't a substitute for allowing the promises of God to grip us. There are not summaries that are better, ultimately. And so we look back at the scriptures. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. What a double promise, reminding us that we're weak, which we sometimes feel and sometimes don't, but weakness, at least in compared to God. And the Spirit helps us. What a lovely promise that the Spirit intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. I love that passage. Every bit of glory that you've experienced, every time you have loved well, done your work well, and patient and kind to a neighbor, and every bit of suffering that you've endured, 
self-inflicted, others-inflicted, is part of God's plan. When Jesus returns, he says he's bringing his recompense with him. One of the most amazing things said, especially to people in a lot of pain. When preaching on that, I look around the room and see people in a great amount of pain, and I'm so thankful and so humbled that I get to say it. Everything that you've suffered and every glory where the Holy Spirit has come alongside you in your life and given you a moment of good love to a neighbor, good work in your calling, peace, does have purpose and meaning behind it. When do we understand that, though? You have to back up in Romans 8 and look at verses 18 and 19 to understand when we will comprehend the meaning of all that we've endured. It's in the new heavens and the new earth. And this is, this is important that we grapple with. And I know I talk about this a lot, and frankly, it's because it comes up in Scripture a lot. In heaven, we will not yet know the meaning of our earthly lives in terms of God's cosmic plan of redemption and healing. Now, we will be released from the presence of sin and death, and that will be very cool. But this promise that I think is the, probably the chief Scripture that leads to the almost truth, which is actually a lie, that everything happens for a reason, that all things work together for good. When will we see that and understand it? Even in a limited capacity, it's when Jesus returns. And we're either here waiting for him and so glad, or we come back with him from heaven. In 2009, I, had, uh, I was diagnosed with cancer. I had to have two surgeries and two rounds of uh, chemotherapy, and I don't know why I had cancer. I took care of my wife when she was sick, and I'm not even ready to have that conversation. Is there meaning to that? Yeah. Am I thankful in some measure for my sickness because of what I learned from it? Yeah, although that word, I don't love it. Am I grateful for how the Lord allowed me to be grown up through that process? Scriptures talk uh, in overlapping categories about how suffering grows us up. We understand more of Jesus as the man of sorrows. It grows us uh, in character and steadfastness. James and Paul both talk about this very similarly. And am I, am I thankful for that? Yeah. Am I joyful? Yes, if joy is confidence in God, regardless of emotion and circumstance. I'll say that again. Am I joyful about what happened to me? Yes. If joy is confidence in God, regardless of emotion or circumstances, do I smile more? Uh, I don't think so. We look at these almost truths. God doesn't give us more than we can handle. And if we're not allowed to tweak that statement at all, well, then it's not true. Because he does. So that we remember that he is God and we are not. What is blessing? Blessing, I think... Summarizing from Jesus and Revelation is knowing our need and that it's meant met in him. It is not provision. And, and what I was attempting to get at in terms of will God balance my life, and many of you wrestled through that and wrote emails and texts and things like that, is was your suffering a big deal? Yeah. Will God heal it? Yes. Is it part of our... Uh, is this something that needs to be integrated into who we are until Jesus comes back? Yes. It was a big deal. And sometimes our truisms uh, squash or minimize or relativize and I think do us active harm 
in that process. And what's better than these almost truths are the truths. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Almost truths are hasty, and yet truth abides. It lasts and will never go away. And it sustains us. I think my, my favorite thing about this sermon series has been attempting to follow this Polish poet, uh, Seishla Milos, who talked about holding his desk, and I'm holding scripture. I touch it more than I used to. I'm looking up less on my computer than I used to because it helps me to remember that these things are still true. They look different in a pandemic, and yet the truths both abide and sustain us. I wonder about your prayer life. Appreciated how Stu both prayed and spoke to that. One of my favorite uh, sequences of prayer in the scripture is Psalm 74 and then Psalm 79 and then Psalm 137. Because you see the, the songs of the people of God get further and further from the horror of being dominated by the Babylonians and then brought into exile. Psalm 74 is the most visceral. Psalm 79, you're a little further away. In Psalm 137, they're beginning to do what God said, though they're complaining about it very angrily. I wonder if you're as comfortable being intimate with God as the psalmist of Psalm 137. I wonder if you're as comfortable being angry as the psalmist of 74. I wonder if you're as comfortable in prayer as uh, the writer of Psalm 40. Perhaps you know the song. One of the most constant refrains of the Psalms is, How long, O Lord? I hope that you are. Because that is part of how we allow the truth of God to abide in us and sustain us, to speak to him like a human in all the ways that we experience life. As we wrap up this series... It has been fun to hear how you're thinking about these things. And my response to almost all of them is like Bill Murray's at the end of Ghostbusters when the mayor's trying to decide whether to utilize their services or not. If I'm wrong, nothing happens. We go to jail peacefully, quietly. We'll enjoy it. But if I'm right, and we can stop this thing, well, you know I could go on and I don't need to. If I'm wrong, and, and there are almost truths that you're wrestling with with Scripture, I'm so glad. It reminds me of when people argue with me about eschatology. That means they're actually thinking about eschatology, and I'm so happy. I hear and I see these almost truths, and I believe it's worth talking about them for a little while so that we come back to the actual promises of God. If I'm right about these almost truths, your heart could heal by rejecting them and receiving the actual promises and abiding love and sustaining power of the words of God. The good news of Jesus is not that we need to do that work to make him happy with us, but in a cursed world with messages coming everywhere, perhaps especially in a culture that doesn't value integrating pain into life, enjoying what Christ purchased for us in a cursed world does require at least some vigilance for us. 
And the place that makes me most nervous for many of you is, is the self-help genre. And what's interesting about it is I've seen self-help help so many people because of a foundation of faith and then of loving family, and then they get some tactics, but we get confused into thinking that the tactics are the foundation. Romans 8 is a incredibly significant part of the foundation for a follower of Jesus in sustaining them, speaking peace to their very being, their heart, mind, will, and emotions. Look again at this lovely, lovely promise. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. You hear nothing else in the sermon. If you're not sure about some of the points I'm making or my experience or how it overlaps, listen to this again, because the Christian life begins with God's love, but our reception of it by faith begins with a sense of our own weakness, which is great news because then he comes and fills us with his strength. His grace by faith received, and then the Spirit helps us speaking love and peace and comfort and assurance to our head and our heart and our gut. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we ask to be gripped by your promises and truths, your fatherly care, the guidance and work of Jesus Christ. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give our imaginations and our minds a sense that you are even now interceding for us, strengthening us in weakness and groaning on our behalf too deep for words. Father, Son, and Spirit, we know that we have your help, and we ask that you would help us to lean into it, be gripped by it. Amen.